Have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmella. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode one, where we will be talking about the Franklin Expedition. No, not that one. Alex, would you like to hear about Sir John Franklin? Haven't we already done this one? Well, as it happens, there were multiple occasions on which Sir John Franklin led a doomed expedition that ended in survival cannibalism. It feels like an unwise decision to have put him in charge of another one. We've been through this in our episode on... Sir John Franklin. (laughs) (laughs) Let's milk the terror for all that it's worth. This is the story of Sir John Franklin, the prequel. (laughs) Mamma mia, here we go again. (laughs) Sir John Franklin, here we go again. My, my, how can I resist you? Let's have a recap first on who Sir John Franklin was, just in case there are any fake fans out there who haven't listened to season one or have immediately forgotten all of the information. Or haven't watched the terror. John Franklin, because he wasn't a sir at the time of this first story. They knighted him for the cannibalism. I think they knighted him for all of the coastline that he mapped. Whilst eating human beings. (laughs) That's a different bit on the little OBE form that you have to fill in. I don't think it says anywhere on the OBE form that you can't have eaten people. I think that if you took that out, we wouldn't have a lot of the sirs that we do have. Services to cannibalism. (laughs) John Franklin, born in 1786 in Lincolnshire, and he fought in the Napoleonic Wars from the age of 15. He mapped much of the coast of Australia under Matthew Flinders and took part in the Battle of Trafalgar, all before he was 22. Overachiever. I know, it makes me feel like a failure. But I haven't yet led any doomed expeditions. And did he have a cannibalism podcast? He lived the actual dream, though. (laughs) He attempted an early North Pole expedition that failed, to quote our former selves, because of all the ice. Yep, fair. They sound very wise. After that, he was given command of an overland expedition in Canada, mapping the Coppermine River to its mouth in the Arctic Sea. And this is when our story takes place. Ooh. Along with him to lead the expedition, we have a Mr George Back, who is a naval officer born in Cheshire in 1796. The name Back rings a bell when it comes to the Arctic. I feel he has something named after him. Yes. The Great Fish River is renamed after him. Ah. There's also John Richardson, a Scottish naval surgeon and naturalist born in 1787. He would later go on to lead another overland expedition to try and find Sir John Franklin when he goes missing on his famous failed expedition that we've already discussed. And another important player was Robert Hood, an Admiralty midshipman. He was about 22 at the time of the expedition. He becomes quite a big name. Back and Hood are the ones who are responsible for the expedition's charts and drawings. So it's their fault. Actually, no, I mean, no, no. what am I talking about? They're making the charts. So Franklin gets the credit for all of their hard work. Yes. (laughs) These are our main four guys who set out from Gravesend. And their expedition goals are determining the latitudes and longitudes of the northern coast of North America. Number two, mapping the coast from the mouth of the Coppermine River to the east. Number three, to amend the, quote, very defective existing geographical knowledge of the northern shore of North America, to mark places where ships might enter or to which a boat could be sent, and to deposit information as to the nature of the coast for the use of Lieutenant Parry, who would be sailing past very soon, to keep notes on the temperature of the air, the state of the wind and weather, 
and any other meteorological or magnetic phenomenon, and finally, to pay attention to what influence the aurora borealis might have had on the magnetic needle, and to notice whether that phenomenon was attended with any noise. Do you know what? I'd never in my life wondered if the aurora borealis made a noise. Well, Franklin did, and he was sent to find that out. I have to admit that once we got into meteorological study, I was like, oh god, it's Greeley again. They're like, oh, it's cold, it's icy, and made of rocks. Don't see why they go all the way there. On the 23rd of May, 1819, the party left Gravesend on the Prince of Wales, a Hudson Bay company ship. Which has the same name as the other Prince of Wales that later encounters Franklin, but sadly is not a whaler. So it's probably not the same ship. Although sometimes the Navy does just co-opt whalers when they can't be asked to get their own. So who knows? She could be. Poor weather delays them and they only properly set sail in June. So they're just hanging around Gravesend. Yeah. But by August 1819, they do make land at Hudson Bay and they're ready to start the overland journey. It takes them nearly a year to travel 1,700 miles to the Great Slave Lake. They're slowed down by exceptional cold, food supply problems already, and an ongoing dispute between the two fur trading companies in the area. Did they not consider the cold when they decided to go on an expedition to the Arctic? I think it's even colder than they were expecting. And the issue with the fur trading companies is that the best guides in that area of Canada are the voyageurs, who are French Canadians. They sound French. Mm -hmm. Who work as fur traders, and most of them were too preoccupied with their arguments to join Franklin. What is this Englishman doing here? That wasn't French. <laughs> That's a great French accent there. The party then overwinter at the encampment of Fort Enterprise from 1820 to 21. As soon as you hear the party overwinter, it's just like, oh, it's not going to go well. Something is going to go wrong. You don't want to overwinter. Actually, this winter's mostly fine, apart from all the infighting between the voyageurs. And the voyageurs aren't the only ones caught in disputes. Back and Hood both fell in love with a girl from the Yellowknife tribe who were local to the area. According to Franklin, the Brits named her green stockings from her state of dress, and she was considered by her tribe to be a great beauty. She had already been an object of contest between her countrymen and had belonged successively to two husbands. Did I mention she's 15 at the time that Franklin's writing this? Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. Belonged. Yeah. For context, Hood is 23 and Back is about 24. Wordless silence isn't a very good reaction for a podcast, but Jesus Christ, come on, guys. That's the colonial exploration macho spirit, I guess. Their rivalry becomes so intense that they arrange a duel. But luckily for them, John Hepburn, a Scottish seaman also along with the expedition, thought ahead and removed the ammunition from their pistols so they couldn't shoot each other. Did they get they got all the way to trying to shoot each other? Of course they did. Franklin then sends back to Fort Chippewyan for supplies, putting an end to the rivalry. He sends back back. <laughs> and Hood is left free to continue his courtship of Green Stockings, with whom he does have a child. Uh... While at camp, they struggle to find enough food to prepare for the journey ahead and hence why Back gets sent away to another fort to find supplies. He does come back with some bits and bobs, and arrangements are also made with the local tribes to leave food caches around so that Franklin's party can access them on their journey, and in exchange they gift weaponry to the tribes. Oh, don't you just love that British colonialism? Mm -hmm. And it's a bad deal as well, because in the process of trading guns, Franklin notes that one of the new trading guns, which we had recently received from Fort Chippewyan, burst in the hands of a young man. Fortunately, however, without doing him any material injury. This is the sixth accident of the kind which has occurred to us since our departure from Slave Lake. Now take note, Alex, because this is in fact Chekhov's gun. I am paying attention to the guns. Once the winter is over, they're ready to set out on the next leg of their journey, finally going along the Coppermine River. 
So they've just been hanging out. They trekked all the way across Canada. 1,700 miles across oh, Canada. Sorry. Over winter, they've just been hanging out yeah. by the lake, flirting with underage children. Yeah, and trying and failing to gather supplies for the journey ahead. I'm sure it's going to be fine. On the 4th of July, the first overland party set out, followed by the remainder over the next few days. The men were hauling about £80 each, exclusive of their personal baggage, which amounted to nearly as much more. Most of them dragged their loads upon sledges, but a few preferred carrying them on their backs, says Franklin. On the 18th of July, they reach the mouth of the copper mine and start to travel east by canoe along the coast. It's quite slow progress because the seas are really rough. And presumably full of ice. Always the ice. And on the 18th of August, the decision is made to turn back at a spot that they name Point Turnaround. Imaginative naming conventions there. Now, rather than travelling back along the coast, e.g. the way they've come, Franklin decides to strike out cross-country where there should, in theory, be better hunting. Which is a fair decision. But also deciding to go the route that they don't know and haven't mapped. Yeah, they've also had an issue where um, their canoe is a bit damaged. They have one big canoe that they're all travelling in. And they decide now that they're going overland that it's going to be too large for small river crossings anyway. So they break it apart and they rebuild it into two smaller canoes that are easier to carry. Okay, that's quite nifty. Very scouting, be prepared. Mm -hmm. They cache their non-essential stores, and on the 1st of September, they set off across an uncharted snow-covered region known as the Barren Grounds. And this is where the hunting's going to be better. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining one of those signposts being like, this way to the sea where you can fish, this way to the Barren Grounds, and like, hmm, chaps, I think we'll head to the Barren Grounds. I don't know what baron means. Could it possibly be French? Baron. Baron. That sounds good. Let's go there. That same morning, there's a heavy snowfall and they're already having problems with the canoes, which are getting wafted about in the wind and keeping the party back. They keep being dropped and damaged by the people carrying them. And this isn't even taking into account that people still have all of their own personal supplies as well as the food that they're carrying. Yeah. Yeah. Along this first part of their route, they hunt for deer and muskox and forage berries. And it's, it's pretty good. They've got some good food supplies going on there. I'm still sort of feeling that the barren grounds aren't going to be that fruitful. This is lulling them into a false sense of security. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, let's see. You never know how this story could end. Well, I know Franklin doesn't die. Exactly. Yet. <laughs> The poor weather keeps up, and on the 4th of September, they're hit with a storm in the evening, and they hunker down. But by the 7th of September, they realise that actually that's just kind of how it is in the barren grounds and in this area, and that you can't really wait for the storm to pass because it's just the weather. So they press ahead. In Franklin's words, Although we were in a very unfit condition for starting, being a week from fasting and our garments stiffened by the frost. Why do they keep putting this man in charge of Arctic expeditions? However, just as they were about to set out, Franklin was seized with a fainting fit in consequence of exhaustion and sudden exposure to the wind. But after eating a morsel of portable soup, I recovered <laughs> so far as to be able to move on. I was unwilling at first to take this morsel of soup, which was diminishing the small and only remaining meal for the party, but several of the men urged me to it. Two points. What is portable soup? <laughs> All soup, by its very nature, is portable. And also, sure, sure they did. No, actually, they probably did, didn't they? It was like, oh, Franklin, you're our only hope. Let us pour this soup betwixt your lips so that you may survive and lead us out of these barren lands. <laughs> What the fuck is portable soup? <laughs> I'm picturing it as like a cup of soup. <laughs> What's non-portable soup? <laughs> as they head out into the storm, the men carrying canoes continue to be blown about, and one of the canoes gets so damaged that it becomes unusable. As Franklin says, This was felt as a serious disaster, as the remaining canoe, having through mistake been made too small, 
it was doubtful whether it would be sufficient to carry us across a river. No, it hadn't been by mistake been made too small. At an earlier date, you decided to turn one big canoe into two small canoes. Don't go backpedalling now that your team have accidentally turned one canoe into a shit kite. That is what I'm imagining, by the way, with the storms in these canoes. They're just up in the air, a bit Mary Poppins. But the plot thickens. Thickens like portable soup. <laughs> because Franklin suspects that the voyageur carrying it, Benoit, had broken it intentionally. He, having on a former occasion been overheard by some of the men to say that he would do so when he got it in charge. However, he... Benoit, that is, then insisted that it was broken by his falling accidentally, and as he brought men to attest the latter fact, who saw him tumble, we did not press the matter further. So it's all just a lot of harmony going on in this group already. I'm getting a very distinctive anti-French sentiment going along here. Don't know where it's coming from, but there's something subtle there. It should also be noted that French-Canadian in this context doesn't just mean white French people in Canada, it could also mean First Nations Canadians. It's just the French-speaking local population. So there's probably some race dynamics going on here as well. There's, I know that at least one of them is definitely an Indigenous Canadian. And, I mean, it's not exactly harmonious between Brits and French-Canadians. What with, you know, Britain wanting Canada. Yeah, it's all a bit tense. Okay, so the Brits are racist, they've lost a canoe, they're running out of food, and they have very little portable soup left. (laughs) Well, Alex, actually, funny you should mention it. They use the broken canoe now to make a fire, and they cook the last of their soup rations that very evening. I thought they were going to use the canoe to make a massive bowl of soup. (laughs) Next up, their trek takes them into hilly territory. Sorry, I'm still on soup. It doesn't seem like a very practical Arctic meal. They're out of soup now. Stop thinking about the soup. They've drunk it all. I'm I'm like Franklin and his men. I'm just obsessed with portable soup. <laughs> I mean, I know there's lots of ice around, but you have to use a lot of heat to heat up snow to turn it into water to turn it into portable soup. soup. I don't know. Oh. It's no pemmican, is it? It's no pemmican. If I may continue. <laughs> I can't promise not to interrupt about portable soup again. <laughs> Aren't people just portable soup? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to look at it like that, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Next up, their trek takes them into hilly country where they find stones covered with lichen which the Canadians call tripe de roche, or rock tripe. Nice. Mm. They manage to hunt some partridge during the day and have a nice partridge and lichen supper, which becomes their normal meal for basically the rest of this trek. Supper or soup? Supper is a direct quote from Franklin. Uh, You didn't do it in the posh Franklin voice. Supper. I didn't know you got partridges in Canada. It's possible that, you know how these Brits are going abroad, they see a bird, they go, it's probably a partridge. They sometimes also manage to scavenge the remains of deer and muskox, which are being killed by wolves. So they're not very good at hunting on their own in the barren hilly grounds. No, they're not doing too well on that front. Although there are some weapons. See, I remember Chekhov's gun. Yes, yes, they're all heavily armed. They are packing. As the kids say. (laughs) I don't think the kids say that. Unfortunately, the rock tripe gives the men tummy upsets. And poor Robert Hood suffers the worst from it. He just, he cannot eat that stuff. That must be quite embarrassing with his new 15-year-old wife. She isn't along the trek with them. She is back at the camp, presumably raising a baby. What an arsehole. On the 13th of September, Franklin was extremely distressed to discover that the voyageurs had at some point discarded the three fishing nets they'd been carrying, taking fish off the menu. See, I'm not so sure how much I believe that the voyageurs were prepared to sabotage the expedition that they were also on. You'll notice that every single mistake is made 
not only by the voyageurs, but because the voyageurs are evil and hate Franklin. And did it intentionally. Yes. And you'll also notice that this account is written by Franklin. (laughs) Never. Like, they are also there. They also need to eat. The French are people too. (laughs) I don't know about that. That's going a bit far. If you'll recall, it's also the French's fault that one of the canoes got broken, and that's also a real sore point, because they're struggling to cross all of the little rivers they come to. On the 14th of September, in trying to make a crossing, one of the voyagers named Belanger took a tumble. Belanger was suffering extremely, immersed to his middle in the centre of a rapid, the temperature of which was very little above the freezing point. Several attempts to retrieve him are made, until... At length, when Belanger's strength seemed almost exhausted, the canoe reached him with a small cord belonging to one of the nets, and they managed to drag him out. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for Belanger, because I went lake swimming the other day, I was only in the water for like 40 minutes, and my fingers were going blue. And I was like, well, I'm going to freeze and die in this lake, and my body is going to be consumed by ducks. So I can only imagine that when it's actually, you know, icy. And the water isn't 15 degrees. To make matters worse, not only is Belanger's life threatened by this, but also Franklin loses his portfolio in the accident, which is, of course, all the French Canadian's fault, right? Because Belanger was carrying his portfolio. He was the one who fell in the water. How selfish is that? Luckily, most of the notes have been copied by Backhood and Richardson already. Always back up your documents, kids. That's the moral of this story. So not too much scientific work is lost. The men still aren't having any success with hunting and they're living mostly on the rock tripe. Apart from Hood. Apart from Hood who is dying on the rock tripe. Yeah, he in particular is flagging at this point and is having difficulty just existing. (laughs) Mood. (laughs) On the 20th, the men were expecting to spy Point Lake very soon, which would mean that they're nearly there. That's a landmark they're looking out for. And at this point, the voyageurs threatened to throw away their bundles and quit us, which rash act they would probably have done if they had known what track to pursue. It's almost like if you consistently blame your guides for everything that's gone wrong, they might decide just to up and leave you. Yeah. Bloody French. However, the next day, they discovered that they've actually strayed east of their course and have to adjust to make up for it. And Franklin is the one who's been setting the course. On the 22nd of September, two voyageurs, Pelletier and Veillon, discard the remaining canoe as they said, It was so completely broken by another fall as to be rendered incapable of repair and entirely useless. Was that good? That was very good. Thank you. Franklin commanded them to go back and retrieve it, and they just outright refused. How far back were they? And doesn't Franklin have anyone else other than his French guides who he is antagonised to the point of possibly trying to kill the entire party? Franklin does give an answer to that, which is that he and the other officers are just feeling too weak to do it. (laughs) Boo-hoo! Pick up your own boat. Finally... On the 24th of September, they managed to kill five deer. Five? Yeah. The voyageurs immediately asked for a day's rest to eat the meat and recuperate, and they so earnestly and strongly pleaded their recent sufferings that Franklin does give in and give them permission for a day's rest. Hood distributes the meat, and the voyageurs, of course, of course, complain that it's being distributed unfairly, although Franklin swears that Hood himself took the smallest portion and was very fair in the distribution. I'm not necessarily sure that I agree with Franklin's definition of fairness, because, of course, it's entirely possible that the men insisted That the officers have the largest portion. Well, you see, what happened was the hunters, the French Canadians who actually caught the deer, said that they should be entitled to, like, the heads, you know, the gross bits, that they should get that on top of their ration, and Franklin disagreed with that. I think that's sort of valid. We've covered before that the people that do their heavier work, like the expeditionaries from the Uruguayan crash, should get... A little bit more food. If you're sending them off hunting, 
They need energy to go hunting and carry broken boats. Well, not anymore. They've dropped that. Can you believe as well that then we learned in the evening that the Canadians, with their usual thoughtlessness, had consumed above a third of their portions of meat? It's just criticise, criticise, criticise with Franklin, isn't it? Is Franklin taking issue to the fact that the Canadians ate their own food? Yeah. Selfish. What did Franklin do with his food? Oh, well, you know, you know, I'm sure he didn't eat it all at once. He's, you know, a a refined gentleman. On the 26th of September, the party finally rejoined the Coppermine River. Not at their original camp, they've just sort of looped round and the rivers come back into their path. Although there is some quarrelling from the voyageurs who don't believe that Franklin is correct about their location and they think that there are several other rivers that it could potentially be. See, I'm now torn between these are the men hired as their guides... But also, Franklin must have pissed them off so much by this point Mm. that they could just be fucking with him. (laughs) This is not the same river, Franklin. I do not know where you are. The river means that they do face another issue, which is that without any canoes, they have no way to cross it. And the only option, really, is to build a raft out of the willow branches that are sort of around in the area. This is going to go so well. It's very Medusa. <laughs> very Medusa. The voyageurs now, to quote Franklin, deplored their folly and impatience in breaking the canoe. So they admit to breaking the canoe. Franklin interrogates Peltier and Rayant again, considering sending them back to try and find the canoe that they broke. But they persist that, no, it's completely broken, there's no point going back for it. Which is probably the truth. Even if it wasn't before, if you leave a flimsy canoe out in a storm for days, it's not going to be seaworthy, river-worthy. That evening, it's discovered that two of the Canadians had stolen part of the officer's provision, allegedly. And as Franklin explains in what has to be the best self-own ever, this conduct was the more reprehensible, as it was plain that we were suffering, even in a greater degree than themselves, from the effects of famine, owing to our being of a less robust habit and less accustomed to privations. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I'm too posh to starve. But sure, they've been giving each other equal rations. Yeah, yeah. For example, the officers equally get more. The next day, they are all delighted to find a putrid deer carcass to eat, and it makes a lovely breakfast, along with a large quantity of excellent blueberries and cranberries. A nice granola. (laughs) (laughs) By the 29th of September, they've managed to construct a raft, Due to the fact that the wood is really green, it doesn't float so well, so they can only send one person across at a time. Oh my gosh, it's one of those puzzles. (laughs) Yeah. But the problem is that to do that, they need to have a line to haul the raft back every time it goes across. You've got three cannibals and three explorers. (laughs) How do you get them across the river on one raft? (laughs) Luckily, the noble Dr Richardson volunteers to swim across the stream with a line and then haul the raft over. Oh, yeah. As soon as he steps into the water, he cuts his foot open on something sharp. Fuck's sake. But he presses on. He's going to do this. When he gets just over halfway, his arms become benumbed with cold, and he lost the power of moving them. And to our infinite alarm, we beheld him sink. (laughs) Jesus. They do manage to haul him back on the line that he's holding, and they manage to get him back to a living state. They thaw him out. They strip him naked and warm him in front of the fire. I mean, I was about to say that's me in the swimming lake, (laughs) but not that bit. (laughs) And when they behold his naked body, the Canadians cry, Ah, how thin we have become! In French, but I don't want to make a fool of myself by trying to speak French. I'll just do a bad French accent instead. I'm just picturing this poor damp cold naked doctor and everyone just standing around him being like hmm thin (laughs) just pointing and laughing (laughs) don't they look at their own bodies so i guess they all stay dressed the whole time because it's really cold i know why they stripped him naked and put him in front of the fire but it just seems mean (laughs) like he's being hazed (laughs) get in the river (laughs) 
<laughs> Strip you naked. Okay, so who's next to try and swim across the river? In fact, they decide that they'll wait and construct a better canoe. Why did they let the doctor be the one to do that? He volunteered. <laughs> they get stuck in a snowstorm for a couple of days, and when they emerge from it on the 4th of October, they finally have a good canoe made out of willow branches and bits of tent, and they're able to cross the river finally. Why didn't they just make a non-shit canoe to begin with? It's this cutting corners thing, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you just want to get across the river as quick as possible. When they reach the other bank, Bac gets sent ahead with the voyageurs Saint-Germain, Belanger and Beaupalon to search for indigenous help at Fort Enterprise, which is where they've arranged for supplies to be cached and help to come and meet them. I feel like Bac probably pissed off Franklin because Franklin doesn't like the voyagers and he's like hmm which of my officers shall i send ahead and just i'm imagining a spat between franklin and back and it's like off you go i think it's that back is the best hunter of the officers because he's always sent ahead with the hunting parties oh okay and saint germain the voyageur is the best hunter of all so clearly this is a forward party who are gonna also hunt as they go okay okay that makes more sense the rest of the party then set out on the 5th of october First of all, they all eat the remains of their old shoes and whatever scraps of leather they had to strengthen their stomachs for the fatigue of the day's journey. Is this when Franklin becomes the man who ate his boots? Exactly. Hey. Pivotal moment in Franklin's career. It's the end of Act One. <laughs> that afternoon, despite all of the extra boot rations, two of the voyageurs fall behind, unable to go any further. Credit and Vaillant, in case you're wondering which ones. <laughs> I don't have a full list of their names, so you just got to keep up. Well, they're not keeping up. Dr. Richardson gets sent back to check on them, despite his bad foot. But he can only... <laughs> I'm imagining he has been allowed to put his clothes back on now. <laughs> I think at this point, he is clothed. He can only find Veillant, and he tries to encourage him to keep on and just get to the next camp where there's a fire. Sounds like a good doctor there. I was like, come on, man up, keep up. Get up, get out of the snow. Mind over matter. <laughs> On the 6th of October, they come to a nice thicket of willows, there's some rock tripe around, and they decide that they're going to set up a temporary camp here for everyone who can't continue ahead. Namely, Richardson with his bad foot, and Hood with his bad digestion. With his dicky tummy. Yeah. They decide that they'll remain here until Franklin can send help back, and John Hepburn also volunteers to stay and look after them. He'll play nurse. The other men push on, but after four miles through the snow, Belanger bursts into tears and declares his inability to proceed with the party. Mood. Yeah. <laughs> That's whenever I go and socialise out of the house, pre-Covid. Another voyageur, Michel Terrault, also asked to stay behind. And now Michel is going to become important in the upcoming parts of the story. So a little background on him. He's another of the voyageurs and he was an indigenous Canadian from the Iroquois Confederacy. When you say he's going to become important later... Wait and see, Alex. Wait and see. <laughs> Franklin grants them permission to turn back the next day, and then Perro and Fontano, who are also voyagers. Now, Fontano is Italian, so I don't know how he's got here, but anyway. Lost. Lost. They're also sent back after they keep getting fits of dizziness. Another voyageur, Augustus, on the other hand, hurries ahead. He just leaves them. He's, he's had enough. He's going ahead. Fair. Which means that Franklin's party is now down to five people. Adam, Peltier, Benoit, Saint-André and Franklin. I wonder how many will return? Oh, what a good question. So where is it that Franklin and his four remaining team are actually looking to get to? They're headed to Fort Enterprise, which is where it's been agreed with their Yellowknife friends that provisions will be cached ready for when they pass by. And that's also where Back and his posse are heading to. Yes, exactly. So they're all going to meet up again, get some food, and then go and get the others who are just sitting sadly surrounded by lichen. Yes, that's the plan. I wonder what happens next. Well, before we get there, let's just check in on Hood and Richardson at their camp. Sad lichen base. They tuck up for warmth and read a couple of small religious books that they hadn't yet discarded. Aww, yes. having a cuddle. Book club. On the 7th of October, Michelle turns up to join them, because remember, they were a day ahead. Joins the cuddle pile. Bringing a hare and a partridge, much to their delight. He's a very courteous guest. 
He explains that Belanger had been impatient and had pushed ahead of him, and Michel had then gotten a bit lost on the way, and he expected Belanger to already have arrived. Because Belanger isn't here, they presume that he's got lost. What does this hair and partridge look like? <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> the next day, Michel guides them back to where the other voyageurs had stayed behind, e.g. one day ahead, and Richardson writes in his account, He's Scottish. Oof. I can't do that. Oh, Kai. Oh, Kai. It did not occur to us at the time that his conducting us perfectly straight was incompatible with his story of having gone astray on his way to us. <laughs> was that at all Scottish? I have the feeling that Richardson isn't going to be able to critique you. It's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just not possessed with his spirit the way I am with Franklin's. And weirdly as well, Michelle insists on sleeping with the hatchet every night. Weirdo. <laughs> Whatever gives you comfort, I suppose. <laughs> some people like a cuddly toy. Some people like a hatchet. Where did he get a hatchet from? It's one of their, you know... Tools. Yeah. But let's leave all of this suspicious behaviour behind and go back to Franklin. Yeah, yeah. Let's get back to common sense. In the meantime, Franklin's party have reached Martin Lake and are rejoiced to find that it's frozen over so they can walk right across it and go straight to Port Enterprise. They can go skating. Yeah, what lovely luck. Finally, on the 12th of October, they reach Fort Enterprise, and to our infinite disappointment and grief, found it a perfectly desolate habitation. There was no deposited provision, and no trace of their yellow knife friends who were supposed to be there to save them. Knew it. Knew it. This was where I was like, so where are they going? They're mm -hmm. going to go and collect the provisions that have been left by them? See, did Franklin actually arrange this or did he just sort of command state that there will be provisions for us? Yeah, in the defence of the indigenous population, the whole section in which Franklin details the various deals all just seems a bit hazy. I don't think there's a proper written contract or anything. It all just seems a bit like, oh, I would like this. Here are some guns. Franklin does, however, find a note from Back who states that he had reached the house two days ago and was going ahead in search of the Yellowknife people. Franklin decides that they'll rest at Fort Enterprise for a few days and they do find the following things to eat. Several deer skins, bones from the heap of ashes, and rock tripe, which creates a lovely meal for them, I'm sure. Soup. And as they sit around the fire cooking their deer skin, Augustus finally rejoins them. He's the one that ran ahead because he got bored of waiting. Oh yeah, Augustus. Yeah, so he's back. On the 14th of October, Belanger then shows up, bearing a note from back. He was sent back with Michelle, so God only knows how lost he got. He's looped all the way around and gone ahead. I am impressed by him. Yeah. So I'm not feeling well. I'm going to go back to the camp. And then manages to overtake Franklin. Good for him. It's unclear between Franklin and Richardson's accounts. They don't seem to comment on the fact that Belanger's achieved this at all. But I assume that must be what's happened. Or they've just mixed up all the French Canadians because they're all the same. I don't know. Could be either. Back's note says that he'd not been able to locate any of the indigenous population. And he wants instructions on what to do next. However, Belanger's situation required our first care as he came in almost speechless and covered in ice, having fallen into a rapid and, for the third time since we left the coast, narrowly escaped drowning. <laughs> Poor Belanger. Oh, for the third time. <laughs> no sympathy there. Belanger is oddly unspecific about Back's exact location, and Franklin finally deduces that he's worried that Franklin and his men would go ahead join Back's party and eat all of their limited resources and then they'll all starve. And Belanger has even tried to secretly ask Franklin's best hunter, Adam, to run away with him and go and find Back. So he's very much hashtag team Back. He's hashtag team get away from Franklin. Very, very valid. Unfortunately, Adam has got loads of swellings all over his body, just from the strain of everything, I guess, and can't run away with him. And the plot is found out. Those dastardly French Canadians. Peltier and Samandre volunteer to remain with Adam at the fort, while Franklin and Benoit and Augustus are going to go ahead to Fort Providence, which is where they overwintered the last winter. 
So there definitely is a camp there. Yes. Well, who knows? There was a camp there. They depart on the 20th of October, but on the 21st, Franklin had the misfortune to break my snowshoes by falling between two rocks. Can't blame the French Canadians for that. (laughs) They pushed me. They made some new pairs of shoes before leaving, in case you're wondering how he has shoes after they ate them all. He's unable to keep the pace, and so he returns to Fort Enterprise. And on the 29th of October, Dr. Richardson and Hepburn turn up at Enterprise. Franklin says, When I saw them alone, my own mind was instantly filled with apprehensions respecting my friend Hood and our other companions, which were immediately confirmed by the doctor's melancholy communication that Mr. Hood and Michel were dead. Perrault and Fontano had neither reached the tent nor been heard of by them. Now, Richardson tells Franklin a grisly tale of what's gone down while he's been away. I'm so glad it's Richardson, because we get this grisly tale in a Scottish accent. (laughs) No, we don't. (laughs) (laughs) Let's backtrack to the 11th, which is the day after Michel has gone to bed with a hatchet. That morning, they awake to find Michel missing. But after some time, he returns with meat. Part of a wolf which had been killed by the stroke of a deer's horn, according to Michelle. Hmm. They believed him and ate the meat, but later came to doubt the story. It was suspicious that the other three men who had been sent back with Michelle had never turned up. They remembered his request that he should sleep with the hatchet, and his cumbering himself with it when he went out in the morning unlike a hunter, which seemed to indicate that he took it for the purpose of cutting up something that he knew to be frozen. They realised that they must have just eaten Belanger, Perrault or Fontano. But whether Michel had killed them or simply found the bodies remains unclear. Yeah. He's been dishonest about what the meat was, according to Richardson and Hepburn. Oh, I didn't, I didn't mean to eat the human meat. I was tricked. By those dastardly French. Hmm. Of course, as it turns out, what they had eaten wasn't Belanger, because he's absolutely fine and he was the one who ran ahead and found back. I think running ahead was the uh, right call in that situation. Despite the extra meat, by the 18th, Hood was severely weak and scarcely able to sit up at the fireside. He's the one who hasn't been able to eat the rock tripe. Is there just one dead wolf or does food keep making its way surprisingly to the camp there's just that one dead wolf actually and the rest of the time they're scraping rock tripe i get the feeling that michelle is probably doing a bit better than the others well i don't know about his physical health but he's certainly behaving really oddly he gets very moody he refuses to hunt or carry wood and when hood and richardson scold him he allegedly says It is no use hunting. There are no animals. You had better kill and eat me. It sounds like he's eaten his friends. Like he's expecting that fate to happen? I can see where he gets the idea from. On the 20th of October, Richardson left camp to gather some rock tripe, leaving Mr Hood sitting before the tent at the fireside, arguing with Michelle. Hepburn was employed cutting down a tree at a short distance from the tent. A little later, Richardson hears a gun go off. And then ten minutes later, hears Hepburn calling for help. Chekhov's gun. When Richardson gets back to camp, he finds poor Hood lying lifeless at the fireside, a ball having apparently entered his forehead. Excellent use of the passive tense. At first, Richardson assumes it's a suicide because of how terribly everything's been going for all of them. But Michelle tells a different story. He says that Hood had been cleaning the gun and it must have gone off accidentally. Remember how faulty all the guns are? Why not just go with the suicide story? Well, Sherlock Holmes Richardson over here sees right through both of these stories because upon examining the body, I discovered that the shot had entered the back part of the head and passed out at the forehead and that the muzzle of the gun had been applied so close as to set fire to the nightcap behind. The gun, which was the longest kind supplied, would not have been placed in a position to inflict such a wound except by a second person. That's definitely not how you clean a gun. (laughs) Hepburn told Richardson that he'd heard Hood and Michelle speaking to each other in an elevated, angry tone. 
However, when he first heard the shot, Hepburn assumed that it had been fired on purpose as part of the cleaning process, and it was only when Michelle called him over that he realised Hood was dead. Richardson claims that he was too frightened to confront Michelle head-on, as their united strength was far inferior to his, and, beside his gun, he was armed with- I hate to remind you, but Richardson is Scottish. I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. Okay, I hate to remind you. <laughs> That's Uni- what you're saying. I know, I'm having to get into the oh, accent. Okay. The united strength was far inferior to his, and beside his gun, he was armed with two pistols, a bayonet, and a knife. I don't know that that was much better than my one. <laughs> it started really strong. I'm about a 16th Scottish. Michelle reportedly prevented Hepburn and Richardson from getting together to discuss events for days on end. It all seems a bit odd because presumably Michelle slept at some point. With the hatchet. They could have had a little conference whilst he was asleep and just shot him in bed. Or just left. Yeah, it seems like a bit of a lacklustre excuse. So they... Definitely at no point decide to eat Hood. They just leave him there. Yeah, his body is just left, allegedly. That's what Franklin reports. I am just picturing him still sitting up at the fire, but dead. Oh, They don't even give him a can. Not that Richardson describes in his account of the events. Something mm. strange is going down at Camp Lycan. On 23rd of October, they set off again, each carrying a gun. In the course of the march, Michel alarmed us much by his gestures and conduct, was constantly muttering to himself, expressed an unwillingness to go to the ford, and tried to persuade me, Richardson, to go to the southward to the woods, where he said he could maintain himself all winter by killing deer. When Richardson suggests that maybe Michel can fuck off to the woods on his own, Michel allegedly threw out some obscure hints of freeing himself from all restraint on the morrow, and I overheard him muttering threats against Hepburn. He also, allegedly, gave vent to several expressions of hatred towards the white people, some of whom, he said, had killed and eaten his uncle and two of his relations. Two points. Mm-hmm. Firstly, I think Michelle probably needs some help. And secondly, yup, that sounds like white people. In the Arctic. They did do a lot of eating other people. Michelle then leaves them briefly to gather some rock tripe, and Hepburn and Richardson confer and decide that they both think he is indeed guilty of murder. Why didn't they just fuck off then? It's all a bit weird. As soon as he returns, Richardson shoots Michelle directly through the head. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> they left it a few days, but they did do it. Richardson notes... Michel had gathered no rock tripe, and it was evident to us that he had halted for the purpose of putting his gun in order with the intention of attacking us, perhaps, whilst we were in the act of encamping. Convenient that the guy he's just murdered was definitely going to murder them first. Yeah, yeah. Richardson and Hepburn journey on, catching up with Franklin, as we know on the 29th of October, where they're horrified by the emaciated figures, the ghostly countenances, dilated eyeballs and sepulchral voices of Mr Franklin and those with him. Dilated eyeballs. Starvation. <laughs> Both Peltier and Salmondre die the following day, just of exertion, and relief finally arrives on the 7th of November when three members of the Yellowknife tribe arrive with food, having met Back's party on their way to Fort Providence. On the 11th of December, the survivors, who I make out to be Franklin, Richardson, Hepburn, Belanger and Adam, reached Fort Providence, where they received news that Hood had just been promoted to lieutenant, just a couple of months too late for him to enjoy it. A posthumous promotion. Franklin wrote all of this up and published it as a best-selling piece of adventure writing, isn't it funny how the British naval explorers are super rational and civilised and reasonable in contrast to the irrational, ignoble natives? Yeah, isn't that funny? Hmm. Barrow, who was the guy who booked Franklin for the expedition in the first place, echoed this sentiment, saying, Out of 15 individuals, inured from their birth to cold, fatigue and hunger, e.g. the French Canadians, no less than ten were so subdued as to give themselves up to indifference, insubordination and despair, and finally to sink down and die, 
whilst of five British seamen, unaccustomed to the severity of the climate, one only fell, and that one by the murderous hand of an assassin. Because they were doing so well before. I think that whilst it became this amazing adventure story that cemented Franklin as a hero in the public consciousness, it's also clear that there are lots of instances where he was given advice by the Canadian voyageurs along with him, which he ignored. There was dissent. He was not really in control of the expedition, didn't really plan ahead, and somehow managed to redeem what was a narrative of basically complete failure, apart from all the coastline he mapped. And getting lost and going slightly the wrong way. And not managing to negotiate with the yellow knife to actually get the supplies that they needed. Yeah, you're doing great, Franklin. Which is why I would say take with a pinch of salt all of the occasions on which the French Canadians did everything wrong. And I'm even suspicious about the idea that Michel tricked people into eating human flesh and then had to be killed. Maybe that was the case, but when the only people who survived to give that account are the ones who shot him, it could go either way. Something very peculiar was going on at Camp Lycan. Well, let's end this story, shall we? On a nice note in Franklin's own words from the introduction of his bestseller. The unfortunate death of Mr Hood is the only drawback which I feel from the otherwise unalloyed pleasure I derived from reflecting on that cordial unanimity which at all times prevailed among us. <laughs> I can't tell if that's willful ignorance or if he genuinely thought it went well. My mate got shot in the back of the head. People definitely ate people. We got very lost. 10 out of 10 would go to the Arctic again. <laughs> and he would. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of the season. Franklin, the prequel. One man, two cannibalisms. Join us next time for an episode on a plane crash in the mountains. No, not that one. Casting Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmella, with post-production and editing also by Carmella and Alex. Art and logo design by Riley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett, Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network.